Hello, legends. Welcome to today's show. Catching up with Cub, as always, is brought to you by Cub, the Club of United Business, Australia's number one members club connecting our country's top entrepreneurs and business leaders. And today I catch up with Cub member Alan Dow, the CEO of The Glue, which is a technology business that specializes in building applications that make your operations more efficient, uh, as well as doing IT managed services. Alan is an incredible CEO and in fact runs a business that has a completely transparent management style, meaning they disclose their profits to their team, they disclose wages to their team, fully transparent. And we discussed the impacts and the benefits of that on his team, on his management and on himself. It was a really interesting conversation. I learned a lot. I hope you do too. He's an awesome guy. Enjoy the show. The Glue. Why is, or how did you come up with the name The Glue for you? Actually, can I guess? Yeah, please guess. This is our IQ test yeah. for potential customers. Okay, so I'll, please go I'll ahead guess. and guess. Well, oh, fuck, that's really put me on the spot now. But um, it's going to be something to do with keeping your business together, technology, bringing all the parts of your business together and, and, and keeping them. So you nailed it. Cub can stuck. become a customer of The Glue then. Awesome. Oh, I thought yeah. I was going to get the job. Yeah. <laughs> So um, we we, we go and sit with our clients, uh, potential clients, and we talk to them about the branding and the name. And we find about 40% of our, of those potential people that come to us actually get what it is before it being explained to them. The ones we have to explain it to generally don't become clients. You didn't cut the, you're not smart enough to be our client. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. But this is the thing. Um, Technology is a partnership, so you have to work together. And if you can't have that meeting of the minds, then normally there's not as much success in the relationship. So yeah. for us, absolutely, just that's that, one of the filters. It's just kind of that concept of cultural alignment and maybe there's an element of brain power alignment as well. You know, it's an additional, you kind of want to work with, um, well, I mean, it, it would be like some companies not wanting to work with startups. It's nothing to do with brain power in the sense, but it's to do with the establishment of the business. As the business as the business gets bigger, it becomes a more a safer client, a more secure client. They've got, I mean, you know you're gonna get paid and you know they've they've grown their business to a certain level. That person understands the realities of what to expect in business dealings and things like that. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely the case. And I mean we've got a mixture in our in our client base. We've got very large startups that are probably no longer really startups. Yeah, Uber still calls itself a startup. Yeah, but uh, we've also got businesses that have literally started today and we're helping them start their journey with technology. So I guess from our perspective, there's that that diversity in the client base and it's a different conversation mm-hmm. because we're either starting from scratch, which is actually really easy in a technology space because you can get it right from the beginning mm-hmm. Uh versus potentially inheriting a client that's been working and, and running their business for 50 years and, and needs to go on a transformation journey. So very different approach and, yeah, that's and different interesting. engagement. It's an interesting thought because it's kind of like, well, yeah, particularly with technology, if you're building technology and a business that has no, no standing is good because it's a clean slate. You're building it for them. They're going to use you from the start. But a more established business, you've got to build – there'd be a big education piece, reintegration, people got to get used to it. They they don't want to change. People hate change. They don't want to change the way they do things. Uh, But they're probably bigger clients. Yeah, they are. And look, they're they're generally more profitable projects for us Mm -hmm. because we we have more to do. So the services revenue is higher. But I think from our perspective, uh, one of the consultants I worked with in the early days when we first established the business was talking to me about this metaphor about building a house and first you have to build the foundations mm. and then you have to move in. And so part of that for us is that journey with our clients of where are you now? What When you move out, make sure you order the skip bin and clean out all the crap on the way through yeah. <laughs> um, and then bring in and move into the new house once you've built it. So uh, it's a really interesting um, metaphor from them and, and I think it really fits with a lot of the established businesses when they're coming to us is, is that whole journey towards um, what is best practice and, and where they started and where they came from where generally there's a lot of holes yeah well we need to get into the glue and actually what what you do more in more detail but but i do like that idea and and thinking of technology because you are building something the problem is morons like me don't know what you're building because you can't see it we don't i hate technology i don't understand it and comparing it it's a it's kind of like um 
painting someone a picture, you know, it, 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 or, or a metaphor that helps them visualize what you're doing. It's like it is building a building. You know, you have to have the architectural plans. You, you know, it, in your case, I guess the technology. Uh, what you know, when they do the layout and they can see, well, if you press this, this goes here. What's that called? That ah, uh, yeah, the the wireframes. Yeah. yeah, the wireframes, and and you know that all needs to be perfect. And then they have to start building the first level and the second level. And then you're saying you move in, you got to fucking get clean it out, move the things in. It's it, it, it's a it's a good way to actually visualize what what you do because you you are builders. You're yeah. just builders of of uh, shit you can't see. <laughs> 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 builders of technology, builders of applications. Is yeah, that what call it? yeah, absolutely. And then once we've built it, obviously, then come the renovations because you realize that you want that pergola out the back or yeah. you want to add that extra yeah. room on the side because yeah. you're having kids and you need a granny flat. Yeah, and, and look, you know, it's a, it's an interesting process in the application side, and and I think it's it's really this. Um, this thing and people talk about the cloud and and really we sit back and go, look, the cloud is just someone else's computer. Like don't don't put it up on a pedestal. Uh, it's just a method to get to where you're going and and there's resources that make it more efficient. But, okay, well, yeah. we're going to get more into that cloud in a, a, a bit later on, but why don't you give us a bit more of an introduction into the glue, uh, how you know, where the company is at the moment, what, what it is you do and specialise in? So we um, we established the glue back in 2016. Uh, it was a, a joint venture partnership between myself and one of the colleagues that I worked with in Fresh Produce and I was exiting Fresh Produce after a long period of time working in the industry and, and needed to do something else because I was burnt out and, and serving major retailers will do that to you. What do you mean fresh produce? Uh, so I was working for a vertically integrated company that grew, pack and distributed produce to like vegetables and fruit to oh, that's the random. major retailers. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I have a horticultural science degree, so that's where I started. Oh, so not so random. <laughs> so not so random for me, but random for a lot of people yeah, that go, yeah. why is he now running a technology company? Um, but look, I spent a lot of time working for that private company and, and look, I was burnt out. I just needed to move on. So part of my exit was that I had to appoint an IT provider to take over that part of my role. And having gone through that review process with all of the technology providers out there, I realised just how crap most of them are. And I'm not saying all of them are. Our industry gets a bad rap. There are some good players out there, but wow, was that a hard piece of work to do. And so while I was sitting there planning my exit strategy from the business, I went, maybe this is something I should be doing. I don't want my existing company to become my client, but... I think this is an opportunity in the market that needs to be met and it, it's the combination of business and technology. So we established the glue. We started, uh, we were just doing consulting initially and and sort of establishing ourselves and, and helping people make decisions in their businesses. But we very quickly realised from customer pressure that we needed to be delivering the service as well as consulting. So don't just do the architectural blueprint but actually go and execute yeah, it. Build the house. Build the house. So we um, we established that. We then got forced into what a lot of people call managed services, giving desktop support and, and oh, all that. What's that, the, like the printing, the printers? The printers and, and the email yeah. and the, oh, my God, Microsoft Word crashed yeah. and I've lost my document. All of that sort of base level support stuff came along and we very quickly realised though that that's a very competitive market to be in and we weren't adding a lot of value. So we, we identified that the legacy gaps were the transformational IT projects, the security of those environments. And, and then we grew our business into applications and, and also cloud architecture and cybersecurity. What, so are, what does that mean? Like you're building, what is it, are you building like mobile apps or what do you mean by applications? So, so for us applications, yes, we see a lot of mobile apps, but our focus is more around the the business applications that really run specialist businesses. So kind of, kind of like CRM, so like customized take, CRMs. Take, take your CRM on steroids, basically. So we want to manage the customer, but we also want to go and manage the financial ledger that goes with those customers. And we we can't do it because our business is special. Is the is the normal line we get from customers? We're so different. Really, a financial ledger is a financial ledger. <laughs> uh, don't tell our customers that because you know. That's an extra extra bit that <laughs> well, we have to do the for them. Ah, oh, that's okay. You know, well, we might have to give them a discount when we do their proposal. <laughs> but look, from my perspective, it's really about the the add-ons that come with that. So the CRM and the financials, and then how it comes together. So how do we manage those customer interactions, and what are we doing that is different that adds value for our clients, and how do we systemize that so that then the application does the heavy lifting, not people with pen and paper. Which in theory should save the company money. Huge sums of money. Okay. So, so that's kind of the that's kind of the 
the the because it's not cheap to build your own CRM, right? Like, no. it's not outrageously expensive, but it's not cheap. But the in theory, you say, okay, well, like, I'm just going to make up a number. So I'm not saying this is an, any number. This is ridiculous. But let's just say, okay, I am outlaying a hundred grand this year yep. to build uh, our CRM. However, that hundred grand is going to save us a hundred grand every year ongoing from that point. So by year two. We're already plus underground. Yeah. And and look, from our perspective, we look at it in, in really full-time equivalents and salaries. How much efficiency do we derive from the platform that replaces people yeah. or enables a business to grow yeah. rather than replacing well, people? And again, so if you look at it like that, what the average wage would be 60 to 80 grand. Let's just say 80 grand. That means if if, you've, if the app has replaced two people, you're already plus 160, you, you uh, you're 60 in the first year. Yeah. And, and look, technology. Up 60 in the first year. Yeah. And this is where technology actually really does start to add value for your business. And and so you've got the underlying stack of infrastructure and stuff that uh, an IT company needs to manage for you. But the reality of it is that investment up front is going to pay back massive dividends if you get it right. Mm-hmm. And how big is the team now? So we're at 25 and that's split across our Sydney and our Budapest offices. Mm-hmm. Um, and so is it's comprised of like what – in technology companies like yours, um, it, it, what are the different teams? So you've got your architects, your builders, your salespeople, or you know, how, how, what's so the So we're largely technology focused. So, we're so no very, salespeople. Oh, you've got me yeah. and that's it. You, um, I reckon you'd be a pretty good salesperson. I'm a terrible salesperson. <laughs> I keep discounting everything and going, I wouldn't pay that much as a business owner. Why should I charge that much? I get in trouble for my business partner a lot for that, but you know. <laughs> you, you win some, you lose some. But look, from our perspective, it's it's really technology focused. So the the bulk of our team, ninety percent, is all focused around delivery. And so that service delivery is everything from the architects and the guys that do wireframes and design design the applications to writing the scopes and then executing. Uh, and and look, we've also then got the team of people that are delivering that frontline support, customer service type operations, but. We are lean and mean. So how do you drive sales then if you haven't got much of a sales team? We don't. And how do, they, how do you get sales? What's, your, what's the marketing growth? Plan? So our marketing plan is almost non-existent. We often say no to customers more than we say yes. And, and that's because by selecting and getting that right culture fit with the customer base that we're working with that understand how we work and how we operate, which is a really long sell for an application development project of any size, our view is we get much better results. They get much better results. It's like a big happy family. Yes, it's that. But it, like you, I, I have heard that from a few people on the podcast. And and, and Cub, I relate to that a lot because I mean we can't. The difficult thing about Cub is we can't sell to everyone who wants to join. You know, we have to sell to the people that should be joining. Yeah. And and uh, but I so which means I personally know how much it sucks not to be able to take money off 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 everybody. And it's almost kind of like. When people say like, a lot of businesses aren't in the financial position to do that. So it kind of is like unbelievable. It's like, oh yeah, you turned down people really. And I guess the question is, how did you get to the point where you were financially stable enough in order to do that? Or how long did that take at least? Well, how many it, years? It's interesting. So our original strategic plan that we established back when we established the business was that we would lose money for three years. And I put the capital in up front with my business partner and we just knew that that was going to happen. In the first year, we turned a profit. So we'd paid back all of the initial capital investment and made a profit. So, you know. Why do you think that though? What, why, why, did, why was it so much quicker than anticipated? I think we soon realised that gap in the market and, and customers identified with us and our approach and they just came out of the woodwork. So we... Every single customer we have today is a referral from someone. But how did you demonstrate that approach to your customer? So how did how did you show them your points of difference? I think the initial piece for me was really around my relationship with my network of people that I already knew in business. And, and they knew that I was starting a technology company. They were excited to find out what I was doing and went, you know, actually I've got a project for you. Would you be interested in X? Mm-hmm. And, and having done that for the first 12 months, the money just rolled in. Like it wasn't hard and I think that demonstrates that gap in the market. And so well, really you're showing the power of having of, of, of leveraging a business in an industry that you have a good network in or leveraging your relationships. Speaking of relationships, 
How's Cub been for you? It's your it's second year now. Yeah, look, I, I think I I've enjoyed it, and and I I was when I was first approached to potentially become a member of Cub, I was really a cynical person. I'm like, is this some terrible BNI on steroids? Where am I going to have to go in and bring five referrals to five separate people that are going to do this? I didn't want that relationship because that's not how our business worked. And yeah, it's too forced. Yeah, it's yeah. forced and and really your business should speak for itself. So from my perspective, I looked at Cub and I was like, mm, I'm not 100% sure. I'm going to do some research. So I did and I looked at it and went, okay, it looks different on the surface, but I'm going to have to experience it for myself. So I bit the bullet, became a member. And and I think who, who was who's your membership manager? So Anthony. Anthony, okay. Yeah, yeah. And look, from my perspective, had a great conversation with him about it, understood a bit more about the approach. And, and really it is – uh, a better business network. I think that's the way I describe it. And those yeah. networking opportunities really started to deliver the sorts of people where you can have a conversation about the challenges of running a business or human resources issues or or have a sounding board where you don't have a huge team of people to have those conversations within your business. Yeah. And, and so what's the thing you've loved most about it? Uh, have I, you built strong relationships? I, th- I think I've been inspired in some cases and I was talking to um, some people earlier. I mean, my fitness journey has been inspired by a Cub member, if not influenced. Uh, so so Raf and Lockie can take some credit for my journey this year. But I think the other thing for me is it's it's not just those inspirations. There's those abilities to interact with people and, and look at how they're performing and how they're running their businesses and execution I think it's been a really successful time for me and I've really enjoyed the the networking opportunities and and the growth in in entrepreneurs and and business people in my yeah. network. Yeah, it's kind of like the only good way an accomplished entre- entrepreneur like yourself can actually go and meet other people in the same position. And it's enjoyable, it's fun, and and, and it's valuable. And and there's no sales. This is the thing for me that really really hits home is you're all there, you're accomplished professionals, you're in a room, you're having a chat you can share and you can engage and you can do all of that and there's no pressure. Yeah. And look. It's organic. Organic is the yeah. right description. It yeah. does. It comes out of that process and you absolutely see a huge improvement in the relationship that way when it's not forced and it's yeah, not all about awesome. sales. Oh, so good to hear. Um, but I just gave Cub a massive plug. Let's get back to you. <laughs> well, about, so you it's a great organisation. You're allowed to give yeah, it a plug. Well, you, you said relationships. That triggers me to Cub. But, but so you leverage your, your existing relationships and perhaps there's a lesson there that when, like, for example, if someone's listening is thinking about starting a business, perhaps it is best to start a business in an area where you have an established network that you're able to kind of leverage immediately off the bat because relationships are – probably the cheapest form of, <laughs> of, 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 of um, everything from new clients to knowledge to, to just friendships with people that can help, you know. And ment- the source of mentoring and I think is that probably the really big thing for me is when you are experiencing those challenges in your business, you can pick up the phone and have a conversation and, and I've got a particular client of ours that um, is new to our business but we've spent a lot of time and we've gone out for a lot of dinners and it wasn't about work. And it wasn't about IT strategy. It was more about just sharing those issues that you have in business and, and the challenges you're facing and just having someone that you can have a conversation with. And that's what I think Cub is about. But yeah. also um, establishing your business is really about having that network of people you can talk to. And, and yes, there's some direct marketing leads there that you might want to explore. But for me, it's more about that that ability to establish and, and actually start trading and, and earning revenue. Yeah, and, and so – your, when, when you were designing your points of difference, right? So basically you looked at the you, – you experienced the market and you said, okay, well, there's a huge problem here. What was the problem you were finding? The biggest problem we found was just a lack of understanding of what IT means to a business. So there's lots of amazing technology professionals in the world. Not so many of them can actually understand their impact on a business and the impact of their decisions. So – the big gap that we saw was that business alignment with technology and and the gap between finance and operations. And, and like when email goes down, what problem is that going to cause for a business that receives all of its orders by email? So what you're saying is kind of is that the technology companies themselves didn't – weren't business-minded. Correct. They didn't fully visualise and understand how the business – 
is going to is looking at the technology. They, they were looking at, okay, oh, emails are down, let's fix that. They weren't looking at, okay, if we implement this um, technology application into this company, we can reduce their fixed costs by 200 grand a year. We can increase client retention by 10% due to automated client retention strategies and shit like that. Uh, and the CEO will be happier because his reporting is live and it's on a dashboard and it's visual every day. And, and this is absolutely it. I mean, you look at the most of the technology companies we know of and, and most of them can't even run their own businesses. Mm. So Most companies fact, can't run their own businesses. Well, that's actually pretty yeah. true. <laughs> that's why yeah. 99% of them don't work yeah. or 90, whatever. The, we should look up that number, but it'd be fucking high, I would imagine. Yeah, and, and so from our perspective, understanding – what that means as a business and what that then means for other businesses and being able to deliver that, that's the key point of difference mm. we were looking for. When we and, so when, and so when meeting people, that's what you showed. You showed, hey, we're not looking at this, oh, just tell us what you want and we're going to build it. We want to understand your business, what you're looking to achieve, and we actually want to think for you in terms of, how, you know, as someone who understands technology, I want to figure out for you the best thing, it can, like what it can do for you and show you what we should be building. Yeah. The, and that's what got you the sales. Absolutely. And the best example I've got of that was the day I sat down with a potential new client and we we're in the room and we had the CFO, the CEO and their operations manager. And my first question when they asked me what my strategy would be was, could I please have a copy of your depreciation schedule? And the CFO looked at me puzzled. The, C, the CEO is like, well, Yes, but why? And the operations manager was just completely off on another planet. And when I when they provided the depreciation schedule, I said, so here's what you're already depreciating over the next five years in terms of IT expenditure. What are you replacing in year one, year two, year three, year four, year five? And what does that look like for your profitability? For listeners, can you explain what a depreciation schedule is? So well? when, when you buy your assets, obviously up front, you're going to outlay the cash, but then you're only going to write it off on your tax over a period of, a number of years depending on the asset that you're purchasing. So for me, I look at it and I go, okay, well, this year if I bought $100 worth of assets and I'm going to depreciate it over 10 years, I'm going to expense $10 of that every year over the next 10 years as I get through the useful life of that item. So if I buy a computer and I'm depreciating that over five years, at the end of five years, I have to be ready to spend the money again to buy the next computer because it's at the end of its life. So for me, it was understanding on a whole, looking at all of those things that that business has acquired over a period of time, what does that look like for them in terms of an expense every year? How does that impact their profitability and what they're reporting back to their CEO, their shareholders, and and how is that working for them? Because that insight for me is about what's not just the cash cost of running their technology, but what's the long-term cost of running their technology. And that below the line accounting speak stuff is definitely not a strong suit of IT companies. We go, hey, just spend the money with us. It's great. You sort out your finances yourself. For us, understanding that key metric, which is going to drive the KPIs and the performance reviews of all of the CFOs and CEOs out there, I think you really need to understand that in depth. Well, yeah, because you're saying to them, look, you need to spend 50 grand now to set up all your IT in the business, but that 50 grand, you're going to have to spend that 50 grand again in six years or five years, depending on the dep- depreciation schedule, depending on when the equipment's going to become irrelevant. We're guessing as experts, it's going to be seven years. Sorry, let's say seven years. In seven years, you're probably going to have to spend another 50 grand. That's something to be aware of. Or if we can provide you technology that lasts 10 years, we, you know, we, we've extended your, it, it costs less on an annual basis. It does. And and I think that's the, the area that a lot of businesses really fail to understand as young businesses, more established businesses that have the, the CFOs in them uh, de- generally are planning that, but not sharing that with their businesses they partner with in technology. So for us, it's really about that process and and fully understanding what's going on not just going here's our recommendations we want them to understand it at that level and what are your thoughts on the profitability of your industry um and the reason i ask that is because um i know that uh, we were discussing before we went live that when covid hit you guys actually looked at your model um, and uh, your team were working very effectively from home, and so you actually allowed them to work from home, which meant you were able to shrink your fixed cost by having less uh, smaller office space. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, a smaller office space, um, and 
And I, so I, I guess my question is, is the industry efficient or is it inefficient in terms of um, a business operation? I think uh, it's an interesting, yeah, it's an interesting challenge as an IT business. So there's this perception out there that people spend a lot of money with their IT company, and so they're buying computers that are three, four, five thousand dollars each. They're they're spending money on development of applications, and and those are big ticket numbers as part of a business. But you look at it, and and from our perspective almost 85% of what we do is pass through. So we don't actually make margin on your Microsoft 365 subscription or your Amazon web services, cloud charges. Buying new laptops. Yeah, that's not, you're not. We make three margin percentage points on most laptops we sell. So for us, it's not about revenue and profitability on those lines. That's a service offering that makes it easy for the customers to then spend the other money where we actually can make a profit in services. So in our space, you have to be super efficient at those processes and, and we spend a lot of time working on that. But it doesn't bring profitability to just bring revenue. You actually have to bring particular types of revenue to the... So the, the profitability comes from obviously when you're actually building the, the, the house, the, the applications. But it's kind of like Cup. The profitability comes from the membership fees which provide members with the networking service. But we do we have a lot of additional things that we provide members with that we make no money on. For example, when we buy the corporate boxes at the sporting games and at the opera and things like that, we don't, tra- you know, we don't make any margin on those things, but they're just another way for members to come together, enjoy something nice and, and meet other business owners. It, it's what we look at as the multiplier effect. So for us, you're spending a lot of money with us on things that don't make us any revenue, but then we do make revenue on on areas of the business where we're delivering services and, and adding value. So for us, that's really important. But I think as a business going through COVID, it was particularly challenging. We, we saw the massive spike with work from home and remote enablement and, and that went for about eight to 12 weeks. And then it went from this massive spike to just dead. And it was not quite hospitality dead, but pretty close. And, and we went through and we just looked at it and we just let it roll because we knew that regardless of what happened, the businesses we were dealing with, the industries we service in financial services and healthcare and all of those areas were going to continue operating because they needed to operate in order for um, people to live, work. Uh, so we knew that we were okay in that space. It would just take some time to recover. But it gave us an opportunity to rethink how we work and I think we have to lead by example as a technology company and actually show what's possible. And that's why we enabled that permanent work from home arrangements. Our, our entire team in Europe hasn't worked from an office since May of last year. Yeah, but are they allowed to? Europe's all screwed up at the moment. Well, well Europe is very screwed up at the <laughs> moment, but they, they can actually work in the office and they are permitted to do so. And, and most of my staff are now fully vaccinated, so they could go back to the office if they choose to, but they don't want to. And what about in Australia? Do you have the, the same rule? So we have global, globally we have the, exactly the same rule for everyone because if it's good for us, it's good for them and, and we want that flexibility. And so our team have that 100% opportunity to work from home wherever they are. That's pretty cool. Work from the beach. And, and you found that, and you found that, that doesn't decrease productivity it, it was easy enough for us because we're very outcomes focused in the way we work and, and productivity has never really been an issue. I think it's transformational for businesses that have always been sort of clock watching and going, did the person turn up at 8.59am mm-hmm. for their 9am start and did they go home at 5.01 from their 5pm finish and what did they do during the day while they were there? If you're having those conversations, they're the wrong conversations. If you want remote workforces, you have to have flexibility. You have to have team members that, and I know one particular team member in our, in our office doesn't work on Fridays because he wants to do it on Saturday afternoon and Sunday afternoon so he can spend Friday out shopping and, and doing something. We don't care because at the end of the day, as long as they're delivering the outcomes that they have to deliver, then we're happy. And so you don't need to measure anything to, so even while they're working from home you don't measure anything to do with their computer activity anything like that it's just okay this this is your task this is what you need to have done get it done we we set collaborative goals and timelines and it's all managed through project management platforms and as long as they're delivering those we have zero care or responsibility for how they do it during those the time frames that they do it 
We do, however, ask them to be transparent with us about their time because we obviously don't want them working too many hours. And if they're struggling, then there's a separate conversation around how we can add extra resource to help them get through a particular Okay, problem. so you're not actually worried about them not working enough, not doing more, not you know, working less to complete the time. You're actually worried about them working too much. Yeah. And you, you, but that would mean you'd have an incredible culture. Your, your team are all A players. They're all embedded in the company. They're all, they've all got a great, I guess, a, a strong company culture. I think the culture sorts that out for you. So once you get to a point, and obviously we're coming up for our fifth anniversary, where you have high-performing people, if someone's letting the team down, the team sorts it out for themselves. Oh, yeah, we have that. Uh, our team basically fires people. <laughs> Literally, <laughs> well, it's like a collaborative fire. Like everyone notices that, and it just yeah. – like, no. Yeah, and, and I think as long as you're hiring people that have that self-awareness, they're going to sort it out for themselves. They're not going to be a good culture fit and they're just going to move on. Uh, it's really cool to hear that because, I mean, I have a very different view. I'm like everyone gets to the fucking office. We're all in here. We all work together. You know, it, it, part of CUB is to be like a business family as the concept. That all starts with a team. We need to see each other all the time. We need to have fun together. We need to talk shit. And, and uh, that's, what, that's what life's about, doing that. And, and um, uh, so we've, we've had an almost different approach where, I mean, we don't clock watch at all. So if people have things to do that – Calvin was moving houses the other day and he just took the day to move, you know. Yeah. He could have done the weekend but who cares? Like he, he works hard, he wants to do it that day, he's excited, who cares? Uh, he can, he's his own boss. But it is – I do like the idea of people being together and I like that. And for us particularly though because we have the members coming in every day for their core session, for their networking sessions and we want to be there to say hello, keep in touch. So – I guess that, that that is the difference where IT, you're developing something, you can literally do that in a room wherever. You can just sit down and, and knock it out. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting though because as much as we are disparate and remote, I still see my team every day. So How? Online. So we – like I was chatting with one of my team members in Europe at 10 p.m. last night on our messaging platform because he was out of the office and he was a bit worried about the fact that he hadn't been in the office that day and he hadn't achieved a deliverable he had owing. And we were just having a chat about the issue and I said, that's fine, no problems, we'll just reallocate it. Someone in Sydney will pick it up in the morning, everything's fine, it's all good. And that afternoon I'd been talking to um, one of the development teams on Zoom and we'd spent 15 minutes just shooting the breeze, discussing vaccination strategies, Europe versus Australia. I mean... We, we don't have to focus on the workload so much. It's more about that collaboration and remote engagement even though we're not in the same place. Because that is what – so if your team is being productive and the job re- allows them to work from home, the, the issue you're going to ha- then have is your team bonding, your team culture, it's being together. And so you're saying you guys supplement in-person kind of bonding digitally and, and that, that works relatively fine for you. And look, I think we have an advantage in our industry that we are the technology industry. So we tend to be early adopters and people are more accepting of that approach. But it also means you have to understand what those interactions look like and be a lot more focused on how people look, feel. We use a lot of video rather than just phone calls. And as someone who manages people, I look at it because – when someone turns up to a Zoom meeting dishevelled and not quite feeling themselves or looking a bit pale on camera in the mornings, you go, I might just grab that person for five minutes after that collaboration session and, and just see check in with them and see how they're going. And it's the same thing that you would do in the office if you were making a cup of coffee and you're standing next to someone who's got the same – who's not looking quite themselves, you might pull them aside and have a chat. It's the same thing but just through a different medium and mm. I think – it's being observant and being engaged with your team even when they're not physically with you. Do you do – what's your meeting schedule? Do you have team meeting schedules? Do you have so one-on-one da- one meeting schedules? Daily, daily catch-ups, absolutely. So everybody in our team has the opportunity globally to catch up on one meeting every day, 4 p.m. Sydney, which is 8 a.m. Europe time for us. Uh, so they can all participate or not. It's their choice but as a general rule most people will turn up unless they've got something on. 
And, and for me, that's a great opportunity in terms of collaboration. But then the one-on-ones is really more focused around people's development and trajectory and their individual goals and milestones. And, and for me, that happens a little bit less frequently, but it's still like I want to be catching up with every single member of my team at least once a month on a 15, 20-minute chat just to see how they are. And more frequently, obviously, if there's a challenge I'm working with them on. Yeah, it's really interesting because when we first, when Team Cub, like when COVID first whacked us in the face, we all went digital obviously straight away and we actually caught up twice a day every day because we just, I don't know, I just felt like if everyone's going to be at home, let's connect more. That slowly as people got used to being at home and like after maybe the first three months that went back to once a day and and then as we became live back in in um back in person and everything, we still kept it once a day. And actually just maybe a month ago, we changed it to now two times a week, the entire uh, team catches up online. So Sydney and Melbourne. And it's kind of like when, when you are fully remote, fully digital, it is important to have more frequent touch points, uh, like more frequent scheduled meeting and touch points digitally. Um, and I found that that definitely helped us. And, and look, it will help businesses, particularly when they're learning to manage their people. So I think if you've always been an in-person manager that walks up to someone's desk and has a chat and you all of a sudden lose that ability, it's how do you transform your mode of operation and become used to these other ways of working and you essentially force yourself to do it at the beginning and then you find natural ways to do it, whether you're chatting through Slack in our case, which is an instant messaging platform for business or you're using Microsoft Teams or hell using Facebook Messenger, who cares, um, have those conversations and do it regularly so that when you do have those in-person video or in-person collaboration option opportunities or, or online opportunities that you're actually making the most of that time too. Mm-hmm. So you're not dealing with individual issues in team meetings. And in your one-on-one meetings, what a type, what's the style of meeting? Because I, I do one-on-ones monthly as well and I, it's probably the most important thing that uh, I do as a manager. Yeah. It's probably the only thing I do as a manager. I'm not a very good manager. Everybody has a different style. It's okay. But yeah, so what's your style? So, of, of, so I tend to work with a, a 12-month plan with my team members. So where are you now? Where do we really want you to be in 12 months? What are the professional development opportunities we're working with you on? What are the technologies you're going to learn or deliver over the next 12 months? What projects are you going to be working on? So for us, because of a lot of the work we're doing is project-based, what interests you? How do we get alignment there? Are we achieving what we set out to achieve on that 12-month plan? And so for us, that month-to-month catch-up is really about organising and making sure that we're on track. Okay. So it's quite a structured catch-up. It's quite like what are you working on, where you're up to, blah, blah. Okay, mine are, see, mine are very different. Mine are more like what's happening? How's, how's life? <laughs> how, how are you at home? Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, yeah, your parents? Yeah, good. Like it's very much more social I guess, approach more just like, how are you feeling? Is everything going good? Yeah, how's the team? I actually use it to cut, to ask them about the other team members. Like, oh, how's, um, you know, if I'm speaking to Laura, I'll be like, oh, you know, how's Alice? Yeah. How do you think she's going? Yeah, she's good. Right. What, are we, what are your thoughts on Anthony at the moment? Yeah, he's really, really in a good place. You know, I, so I speak to the team about the other team members and, you, you know, you, sometimes you find out things that you that no one's told you. You're like, oh, yeah, he has been a bit quiet because of uh, his girlfriend or, or whatever it may be. That's not true. So girlfriends of team members of Cub, <laughs> I made that up. But, but you know what I mean? Like yeah. you'll find out these little you, – you, You'll. it's important to keep your finger on the pulse of your team culture and, and bond. Yeah, you absolutely have to. And, and in my experience, if you're not on the money with that stuff, that's when your high-performing team is going to go completely out the window. Yes, and sometimes, uh, which I recently – had an experience of you have someone that's amazing that you know this person's a rock star and then all of a sudden they have a horrible you can see they've checked out they've got a horrible month or a horrible period and um i actually sat down uh, with them and said listen this is very unlike you what you know obviously something's going on are you upset about something is is this something in in a one-on-one and just by having that open honest conversation and just saying hey obviously something's wrong because you can do a lot better than this we know that you, you, it, it fixes the problem just by asking them, you know, what's happening. Yeah. And look, I, I've managed a lot of people in my career and you're absolutely right. 
having the right conversation and acknowledging people's issues and having a culture where it's okay to talk about that stuff is super important. Yeah, okay to be honest and also okay. I like the idea of people bringing their work problems, sorry, home problems to work because they're going to do it regardless. If someone's, if a, a family member's sick, you, you're obviously when you get to work, you're still going to be upset. Yeah, of course. So, so you, you, you're better off having your team at least be able to, if not to each other, at least to you be able to sit down and even give them the opportunity whether they want to initiate it or in your monthly catch-ups you. Or like you said, if you yeah. see someone's a bit upset, you say, look, what's, what's going on? Is everything okay? And ha- have them feel okay to express home issues at work because the reality is it is going to affect the work and it might be best that that person takes a bit of time off. You know, it doesn't have to be leave, doesn't have to be anything, just takes a bit of time off just to kind of, have, you know, I know what, yeah, yeah regroup, re-rest, whatever it may and look, be. We've, we've seen it heaps of times where we've had that level of engagement and and you have to remember that most of these people are doing 40 or 50 hours a week in, in your business. They're often spending more time with you in waking hours than they are with their families. So your, your work family, as I describe it, can often be that support mechanism that people need away from the pressures of what is typically an issue coming from home. Yeah. And the other benefit people have in that, like that work family concept, is that if you don't want to express issues going on to your friends or family, it gives you that third community to 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 talk about it with. And it actually, because no, then they're very rarely connected. So, you know, you can keep those conversations quiet in that third, in your in your um, colleague community, it, it won't connect to your family and friends. It's kind of like what Cub does for the business owners. It gives them that third community. You know, the members have their families, they've got great friends, but they're searching for a community of people that are in their position that understand them, like you were describing. And Cub gives them that that group of business owners who they can speak to about yeah, that abso- type of thing. Yeah, it absolutely does, and I think that that is exactly what business owners need is that that opportunity to go and have those conversations about those challenges you're having with your work family uh, outside of the work family. So, yeah, it's a good opportunity. Also, and how would you describe yourself as a manager? Because I'm getting the vibe that you're a pretty kick-ass manager. Uh, I don't know. Ask my team. They'll tell you how good I am or how bad I am. But um, I, I think I try to embody what I don't like in managers. So I, I – Try to embody. So, no, that's the wrong wording. I, I, I try, try to be not <laughs> to embody what I don't like in managers. And so obviously um, coming through your career, you encounter different people and you see a lot of different management styles. And I've seen everything from when I was quite young working in casual retail the the age discrimination that happens with juniors who aren't getting paid the same as adults but delivering over and above what the adults that they're working with are, are working on. So, But that's also – sorry, to, actually you keep going. <laughs> no, 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 it's okay. So from my perspective I looked at it and went I never want to be that employer that judges people based on their age, sex, culture, race, whatever. I want to be the person who looks at their skill set and goes – you're adding value to my business. You're adding value for our customers. We're having a great relationship. Let's pay you what you're worth. And and so I think that's one of the things I learned. Don't be that manager that judges people um, and don't prejudge because sometimes the 18-year-old is going to be five times more effective and efficient than the 50-year-old that's been doing it forever. I agree. But also at the same time, you don't want to dem- – so young people are in a fantastic position in the workforce because – old people are more expensive. The older you get, the more expensive you are because you have more commitments. You've got a house to repay. You've got a husband and a wife. You've got kids. You've got a, a sick mother. You've got, you've got all these expenses. And so the older you get, you may not improve or become better at the job, but you're becoming more expensive. And so when old, when, old people, when older people go into the workforce, they're much less likely to get a job because – Younger, younger staff are more energetic. They've got more time. They have no commitments out of the thing. They're cheaper because they may even live at home or they have a roommate. Or, and, and so they're a much more attractive hiring process. And, I mean, I'm not saying to pay them less or, or that it's good to get paid. Actually, I am fucking saying that. It is good because they're almost guaranteed to get a job. Like it's much. You'd rather be able to get a job whenever you want than it, 
be really hard. Imagine losing your job and not being able to get a job for six months, a year. And that would be really hard, especially with all these things. If you're young, because you're cheaper, because you have more time, because you're more open to learn and you haven't been damaged by other companies and things like that, you you almost have more power uh, yeah. yourself. I don't know. I, I might have to agree to disagree on that point. I, I still feel that having been discriminated against as a young person with good skills, I don't want to pay people less because they're young or because they have less commitments. I think they should be paid based on their value. And and that makes for tough conversations with old people with a lot of commitments, let me tell you. But it also means that the young people that work in your organisation being valued and understanding that as a member of the team they're going to be treated equally um, it comes down to that whole ability to justify. And I think as a manager, when you're having those salary conversations and there's a lot of talk at the moment about this whole open salary disclosure mechanisms and Fuck whether that's a that. good thing or a bad thing. It's a bad thing, I tell you now. Well, but from my perspective, as a good manager, I should be able to articulate to my team why someone gets paid more than the other. Yes, but it's not one person's business what another person's financial situation is. You can't. You may as well tell them their family situation and their wife's cheating on them. They may as well know that too. Like you, there's, there's a you know, they're, they're, people have reserved the right to have their own privacy. If someone shouldn't have to outlay, I, I earn this much because sometimes it's embarrassing, particularly if someone's younger and they're earning the same. That that can demean the the elder person. But but see, I think that takes the different approach. I mean, from my side, I look at it and say, well, actually because I pay based on skills and capability, I have a position that it doesn't matter how old you are or where you're from or what you do. The conversation in our team is really open and transparent in that space because we have very defined skill sets and capabilities and we have to pay for those. And if you're delivering more over and above, then people will see that and make their own judgments. And so it comes back again to that high-performing culture. Yeah, but I agree with that. Like I agree with... um you, we pay for value. We pay on the value you get. But what I would never do, and, and making that open, so that's yeah. a known thing. Like we, we don't care who you are, where you're from, what experience you've had, you get paid uh, on, on value. But, but um, I disagree with telling someone what someone else is making because that's a personal, that's a private matter. Finances are very personal. Like yeah, imagine I, I don't go telling people how much I make. Yeah, but if people ask me, I, and as I've said to my team, I'm happy to print out my pay slip and put it on the pin board. It doesn't bother me because from my perspective, it's an open conversation about pay for performance. But would you print your profit? Would you put your profits up? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, you would? Oh, that's really interesting. I have no issue with it because I'm absolutely happy to have that conversation on its merits with anyone who wants to have that conversation. Oh, that's really cool. And that, that's really cool. Because they have, as team members, contributed to that outcome and if it's a great outcome and I can have the right conversation with them about it, hey, even if I put it up and it's a sea of red, at least they understand where the business is at and what it's doing and what strategies we've got and how we're approaching it because then they collaborate better to achieve the outcome. Yeah, I agree. Sea of red's probably uh, – I don't have that problem, that. by the way. I know but. that, but that, that's not going to cause issues. But if you have a very large profit, people may say, hey, wait a second. They uh, should be participating though. And I think we're, we have an advantage because – any of that profitability that comes is part of our incentive package anyway. They'll get a percentage of it back in their in their bottom line. Wow, so when that's they get really payroll. cool. See, so, this yeah. is your really interesting management style. I really, really like that. And, I mean, I wouldn't do it. No, it's fair. is different. Yeah, that's, well, there's all different styles of management. But what's really amazing is kind of understanding your thought process behind. How, how, so your company is very transparent. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our customers are more than welcome – to go and do and, – and look, I think as you get bigger, you get less worried about it because mm-hmm. ultimately if you went and listed on the ASX, you have to disclose your financials publicly. If you are a large Australian private company, you have to disclose your uh, financials and you can go and download them off the ASIC website if you're prepared to pay the fee. Why if you're a private company? Large private companies have full financial disclosure to ASIC as well. So you still put your financial reports up. How large? Uh, I think I once that. you get into hundreds of millions, you then have to put it up I on the website. That. But don't quote me on the actual number. Yeah, I'll find but yeah, it. Large private up. companies do have to disclo- disclose That's super cool. As well. And so what are the benefits that you've found being a transparent – you should have put that on your prep sheet. That's a great <laughs> conversation. What are the benefits you've found in being a tr- such a transparent 
company? And I what are some of the issues perhaps? Well, I think it's it's a culture issue to begin with because people have to understand the information that they're consuming. And so there's a bit of education that goes behind what is appropriate in terms of a profit for a business to make and what is it appropriate that I take out as a as an owner of the business as a as a dividend and what does that look like for me and why should I get that money and having those conversations is a little bit difficult at the beginning because all of a sudden they have to understand that there's a cost that comes with putting capital into a business and that investors require a return on their investment for the money they've put in and the effort they've put in so once you get past that conversation I think it gets a lot easier and I think probably the biggest challenge is transition for people that haven't been exposed to that before uh, around how we do incentives and what we're doing and and why we do it a certain way. But once they're engaged, they tend to stay engaged. Yeah. And, and how did you get them past that point? So how did you get them past, hey, listen, I'm making this much a year. You can't see me working perhaps that much because you're working a lot and I think it comes down to the fact that I can't sit there and look at a developer that's building an application and say, oh, today you wrote five lines of code and tomorrow you wrote 100 lines of code and the day after you wrote 3,000 lines of code because I don't, as an individual person, know exactly what went into that code. They might have spent 11 hours researching the three lines of code that was very effective and efficient and then executing it. But equally, they could have done the same same thing in five thousand. But for lines. yourself, so like, how do you justify your dividends or the profits of the company? For Easy, absolutely happy to have a conversation around what a commercial rate of return looks like on an investment. I mean, ultimately, business owners want and need to be making five, ten, fifteen percent return on capital. Otherwise, why deploy the capital there instead of deploying it somewhere else? And if you were making, so let's say you're making more, your, your profit margins were very high, would you then still sh- disclose then that? Then I should be reinvesting it back in the business. And I think that's one of the benefits of the transparency is if I'm taking so much money out Keeps of the business, it helps us keep accountable to our team that we're investing in the long-term success of the company. That's a really cool management stuff. I've never, I mean, I've heard about it and, you know, you hear some podcasts about it and whatnot, but, but I've never actually met somebody that runs a style that maybe elements of what you're saying, but you're, you're full blown. What, what would you call that? I think it's just transparency. transparency. I mean. Like naked business. Yeah. Well, that's actually, yeah, that's yeah. a good call. I think naked business is a good way to describe yeah, it. Me too. I should be in marketing. <laughs> um, that's super, super cool. Yeah. Super cool. Okay. And um, what's then your plans for the business? Cause I actually want to talk about you, your journey, where you're from and stuff, but we, we got real deep in the, into business conversation there, but what what are your plans next for the business? Are you do, do, are you looking to scale, or are you happy with the size of the business currently? Look, I, I'm always happy to scale, and I think one of the things that we are always really careful of in our business is that we scale sustainably. So we don't want to do the boom bust cycle because it absolutely destroys the customer experience in in what we do. So we're very strategic about how we do that and when we do it. What we find is we get um, breadth and depth is the way I describe it. So we tend to add solutions that are customer relevant. So we've over the years expanded from consulting to managed services to application development, infrastructure consulting and cybersecurity. So if there's another pillar that's missing, then that breadth will change and we'll add that properly to, to scale the business. But equally we then want to increase the size of the business, the volume. And so that volume comes with scaling out the existing service offering and delivering it for more customers and doing it efficiently. So the goal for me is roughly 30 to 40% growth per year. Oh, so um, it's still big growth. Oh, well, I don't know. Uh, if you for, compare for, standard, for, a, for, for a typical business. For a typical business, 30 to 40% is a lot. For technology, probably not so much okay. because you're being compared with the canvas and afterpays of yeah, the world where they just skyrocket. They're the statistical and, anomalies. They don't make sense. And and They this, probably literally don't make sense. This is, this is absolutely the point. Like So in technology world, 30 to 40% is pretty reasonable. And so from our perspective, we're growing at that rate and achieving those increases and consistently achieving that, then I'm happy with where we're at and, and the growth that the, the business is going through. And look, we're always happy to talk to new customers, but as I said, we're selective. We want to have the right culture fit. Mm. We're business partners with the organisations we work with. Yeah, and really, I mean, I agree f- always more with that attitude towards scale 
than people that are trying to oh, 200, 300% per year because the, ga- the, the name of the game for business is longevity. Yeah. The longer your business survives, the higher your chance of – the higher the likelihood of survival goes and the, the higher the likelihood of profit and the higher the likelihood of, of absolutely everything. At the end of the day, unless you sell for a large sum, um, and even if you do sell for a large sum, it's still not as good as, continu- as continuing the life of your business because the money you will accumulate – and the capital gains on whatever you do with the money and all this type of thing is going to be larger than the sale anyway. Sale is more like I want to retire or I want to completely move to something else. But longevity is the game and longevity means sl- not slow growth but steady, safe, steady and safe growth. And, and I think from our perspective, we're a privately owned company that's privately funded with private capital that – doesn't have the pressures of investors, investors that mm. are demanding those huge returns other than the people that work in and own the business. So we're very fortunate in that space that we're not being forced into areas we don't want to go to just to achieve a number. So from our perspective, that's really nice to be able to do that sustainably for the long term. And like I'm looking at it not just for now, but I'm looking at it for my daughter. Um, we've Obviously, you've got kids she may want to come and work in and and run the business longer term. She may not, but ultimately for me, she's 11. She's got a little while to go yet. And I'm looking at the next generation as well and that whole succession planning thing and and what's going to happen with a private business. You could sell, but I want something that's a long-term cash generating machine Mm. from from my generation, the next generation, and the generation after that. We look at that the same way. Uh, That's how I view you come in its current form as well. And and so tell me about the family then. So, so tell me about you. We went real – we're normally supposed to start with a bit more about you and we just went way off track. But but uh, tell me your story. Where, how did you start? Where did you start? How did you grow up? Did you always want to be in business? So uh, I guess I, I was born in Perth in Western Australia, so everybody has to promise not to hold that against me. I'm, I'm not in favour of solid borders between Western Australia and the rest of Australia, <laughs> just to be clear. Uh, but I moved to Sydney when I was young. My dad worked for Commonwealth Bank and he moved over to Sydney for work, so we came over when I was very, very young. And I grew up here in Sydney in the northern suburbs and, and have actually lived in the northern suburbs ever since. So for me, I grew up in Sydney. I've always loved Sydney as a city. I love travel just as much. But for me, growing up, went to uh, a Catholic primary school and then into a Marist high school. In uh, uh, And so then went off to university and studied horticultural science. And, and really for what me- What is horticultural science for so people like plant, me who have plants. No Let's talk about plants. Okay. So uh, I learned all about how to grow plants, um, typically legal plants, uh, but- hydroponics and and growing for not just food production but also gardens, landscapes, that sort of thing. Uh, I spent a lot of time in my youth working in garden centres and and learning about landscaping and landscape design and actually when I finished my degree that was what I wanted to do. Um, I did it for about four or five months and realised very quickly I didn't want to stand out in the rain digging through mud and putting people's gardens together. I figured there must be something better and I was offered a job in um, the fresh produce sector, sector as a um, uh, graduate working with a business, an agribusiness that was supplying the major retailers with fruit and veg. And at the time I thought, you know, look, I'm young. What's the risk? I go, I do it. I don't like it. I can move on and go back to what I was doing. Um, I ended up staying there at that company for 12 years. And and so I went from being a graduate to the general manager and and, you know, you learn a lot through that period of time. That The business scaled massively during that period. We went from one site to, to sites up and down the eastern seaboard and from just being a wholesaler to being a full-fledged farming operation. And I think you, you scale out and you see all of these new roles formed underneath you in terms of people and, and you learn a lot around business and business risk and, and that sort of thing. But I, I think for me, I've always enjoyed business. And I've always enjoyed the relationships that come with running a business and, and managing people and, and strategy and performance. And I think you look at that and for me, that's what's driven me all the way through. I mean, I had a mowing ground when I was like 12 and I was mowing all of the lawns in the street where I grew up and actually making very, very, Decent very money. nice <laughs> money at that point. Um, I actually had a conversation with one of the local mowing contractors who was very upset with me because I'd taken all of his business. And and I'm like, well, 
you can do better. I'm here. I have no travel costs. I can do it cheaper than you. I have all the time in the world. People and, trust me because I'm young. Yeah. And and I have a good relationship and apparently you weren't doing such a crash hot job, so you lost the business. And that taught me a lot even back then. And so coming through that whole business cycle and, and learning from, from other people in industry, you then you become naturally – I don't know, you get this natural high from running a business where you see the successes, you see the failures and you just go, this is amazing, I'm happy to do it. And so I've gone from a, a science degree in plants to running an IT business but but ultimately the same thing for me is always coming through. It's all about identifying what does the customer want, what are their needs, why, why do they need it, how does it work and how do we do it better. Do you think you were born an entrepreneur or you grew entrepreneur i think your personality naturally leans towards being an entrepreneur but at the same time your life experience dictates your capability to do it it's such a shit word entrepreneur i told laura the other day before i die i will have created a different word to substitute for the word entrepreneur i just think it's a garbage word it's too i i own an entrepreneur's club and i can't even spell the word entrepreneur because it's (laughs) It's so ridiculous. It's too long. It's not attractive. It needs to be something short like jump. Yeah. Like not saying it should be jump. But just, it's just a short, easy word. Like, you know what I mean? Like something really quick, snappy, got it. Like business owner even. Like that's just an annoying thing to say. Like should, it can't be B.O. because it stinks. <laughs> <laughs> but that was the lamest joke I've said on the podcast. But but so you, so you feel like your personality was – yeah, I think you naturally lean towards it. And I think part of being a, a business person is your ability to engage with others. And that's a skill that you develop and you refine. Like it's not something that you know straight up. I mean, I know I was the most horrible employee when I was 23, 24, 25, because I didn't understand what motivated other people. I only understood what motivated me. And so part of that career growth and, and change is all about how you – um develop your skills and, and learn about other people and how they drive. And so how old were you when you started uh, the glue? So that was 2016. So that was five years ago. Uh, I was about 33. Okay. So you had kind of been in the, so you've had, you had the experience of scaling uh, someone's business. I'm assuming it was probably a pretty high net worth person. Family business. Big, big business, a big, big family. And and you scaled their business. You learned management. You, You kind of, you kind of got a taste for what it was to run a business and you kind of thought to yourself, oh, fuck, I can do this. I, I could do something myself. Is that? Yeah, I, I think you get to a point where you want to actually make decisions for yourself and not have to explain to someone else why you're making the decisions the way you're making it. Although with the way we're transparent in our business, I guess it's probably really no different now anyway. Mm. But I think you're managing your own destiny. And then that, and that's the key thing for me in, in running your own business is being able to control that destination. Mm. And, and also you were saying you got burnt out. And that's why you wanted to move. I mean, it just shows you everything happens for a reason. You, know, you got burnt out and then the, your employer said, hey, listen, find a substitute for yourself for, for the business, another company. You went out and met a bunch of IT companies. You thought, God, these people are horrible. I don't want to hire – I, I don't want to give – I don't want to hire any of them. And you thought maybe that's what I should – like it's – you know what I mean? Like then you start an IT business. It's kind of like um, – do you call it an IT business? Eh, yeah. We can call it an IT business. Um, uh, it's kind of like everything happens for a reason. Sometimes you just need to roll with the punches and yeah. and and go with it. Absolutely. And, and just to wrap up, what do, what do you think? Because uh, we have had a brilliant conversation. So thank you for today, Alan. But what would you say one of your greatest business lessons have been that you would share? Yeah. Look, um, I think for me, probably learning that team members are not forever. So we when we started the application development part of our business we we hired in a, a team member with immense skill and capability who promised the world and they came in and they executed a lot of it but the problem we had was we established a whole business unit to support that person and didn't really know 100% that they were going to stick around and they didn't so we then had a very short exit period where we potentially were going to disrupt a lot of customer output when that person left. And I think for me the biggest lesson there is don't build your business around one single person. Yeah. You need to make sure that you have great 
retention of corporate knowledge even if people leave? That's the problem with having a lean team and being a private company, especially one that values profits because you're trying to keep the team lean. But that means if someone – you know what I hate actually? As, as the business owner, everything's against you because if someone wants to stop working, they can stop working straight away. Yeah, now nah, I'm over it. I'm going to move on. But God forbid – you, God forbid the person's just not that great. They're, they're a bad culture fit for your company or something like that. They, I don't know, they turn out bad. You can't, it's not a two-way street. You know, you can't end that. It's kind of like, oh, it's a full mission now. I don't know how I got into that topic. But the problem is that with a, with a lean team, if someone leaves, you have serious disruption. And you can almost understand why the large corporates have such beefy teams they have backups. You can also understand why they've got such strong operation systems and that people just – all your job is to just do that one role, to follow that system. That's your job. That's all you do. Don't do anything else because it's easy for them to move someone in yeah. after, you know. It, it's about finding the flexibility though and I think finding that balance is important which is where we now look at it in a lot more detail around how that workload is spread and make sure that there's always two people doing the same job and yeah. that there's always that ability for someone to step in and change out who's doing what so that you don't ever get yourself into that situation again. And so even in my role, everything that I do has to be able to be replicated by someone else. God forbid I get hit by a bus tomorrow, we still need to run a business and it has to be able to happen without that person. I think you are a very special, special entrepreneur. Actually speaking to you today, hey, I learned a lot. But B, I just realized how actually special of a, of a business owner you are. You are. There's very few people like you. I can tell you now. I'm a, my my full time job full time job is to meet uh, incredible people and successful people. But but you're really really unique in how you're doing it. And I think the success you're having from doing it, it just shows you. It's proof that. And, and mind you, I mean I don't. It's not that I disagree with with your style, it's just that that's not my style. And what that shows is, and what I've learned anyway through meeting people is because there's tons of different styles of, um, there's tons of different directions to success. There's different ways to get there. There's no right way. And it's about finding your right way and what you feel comfortable with and what demonstrates your style and and this culture and the style of the company you want to build. And I think that you're a fantastic example of showing that, hey, if you want to run – a naked business in the sense of everything's open. It's, it's more kind of democratic. Yep. Um, um, this works, per- it can work perfectly. Yeah, absolutely you it know? can. And I think it's just understanding exactly how you want to run your business and then being prepared to actually push for the outcome. Uh, and it doesn't matter, as you say, whether it's a naked business or not, but from our perspective, you, you can succeed and succeed really, really well if you actually put in the time and the effort in explaining the reasons behind why you're doing something. Yeah, reasons behind why you do I like We should coin that. We should patent or whatever it's called, naked business. I reckon that's yeah, it. I reckon it's awesome. All right, Alan, thank you so much for coming on today. Um, to the listeners, if you want to find out more about Mr. Alan Dull, uh, go to cub.club forward slash podcast. You'll find a bunch more uh, information on Alan, key lessons, quotes, books. Uh, you can reach out and contact him. You can LinkedIn, website, absolutely everything. You can actually check out all the podcast guest information there as well. Um, it's awesome. It's cub.club forward slash podcast. Alan, do you want to say any last words? Just thanks for having me. It was amazing. It was great fun and we should do it again sometime soon. Yeah, really do because I could keep – Laura was twirling fingers at me but you know what I wanted to keep talking about? I wanted to keep talking about um, wages, uh, staff issues and roles. All right, we've got to wrap it up. All right, see you, people. Hope you enjoyed the show. Thanks, guys. See ya.